Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Last week, we kicked off our new season of programs with a discussion of the challenges in American criminal justice today. Jeffrey Rosen was joined by Judge Jed Rakoff, author of the new book, Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free, as well as former Judge Paul Cassell and Professor Carissa Byrne-Hessick. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Um, I will jump right in, uh, Judge Rakoff, with your uh, wonderful new book. And um, you begin very clearly, and you helpfully sum up your arguments, um, some of these um, Essays began in the New York Review of Books, where you developed a, a very powerful and accessible way of writing about the legal system. And your first chapter is about the scourge of mass incarceration. And you argue that uh, there's no question that the data suggests uh, that there is tremendous uh, sense of uh, over-incarceration in America. And yet the evidence for whether it actually reduces crime is mixed. And yet these laws are the result of uh, laws that were passed a generation ago at a different time, and they're not repealed because uh, they remain popular. Tell us more about why America suffers the scourge of mass incarceration and whether or not incarceration reduces crime. So thank you very much, uh, Jeffrey, and thank you for inviting me to this uh, uh, very, very uh, excellent panel. I am, of course, uh, intimidated to be the, the only non-tenured professor on this panel, but I'll do the best I can. Um, the More than any other reason, the reason I wrote this book is because I feel judges must speak out about the scourge of mass incarceration. It is we judges who put those people in jail. Now, by mandatory minimums and career offender statutes and the like. But nevertheless, uh, we are the instruments of this terrible situation. For the last 20 years, up till through 2019, uh, more than 2 million people were either in jail or prison in the United States. So that was a fair, fairly constant number. I will add one caveat to that in a second. But um, and that was despite the fact that throughout those years, crime rates were mostly declining, uh, but it didn't decrease the number. We were locking up a higher and higher percentage of those who were accused for longer and longer periods of time. The result of this is first, that the United States is now the world's leader in number of people in prison. Uh, there was a time when we could all boast when I was growing up, we were the you know, world's leader in cars or steel or something like that. Now we're the world's leader in incarceration. And it is very sad. 25% of all the people in carcer incarcerated in the world are incarcerated in the United States. Furthermore, they are predominantly young men uh, of color. 60% are uh, black and Hispanic males between the ages of 18 and 34. They are being taken away from their families and their communities at a critical time in their lives and their families' development lives. Um, and uh, the result, frankly, is, is devastating. It's interesting in 2020, which my 
the statistics in my book go through 2019. But uh, just this past year, the preliminary statistics, according to the Vera Institute, are that there was a decrease uh, in to, to 1.8 million uh, as opposed to the uh, over 2 million that had been a constant for over 20 years. And the reason for this was partly the pandemic, uh, the particularly in rural areas where they had uh, uh, little capabilities of dealing with the pandemic, uh, fewer people were being sent um, to prison. And it was partly the result of some of the few good steps that have been taken, like the First Step Act uh, and bail reform. But according to the Vera Institute, the one group that did not show the slightest decrease even in this pandemic period, even in 2020, was young black males. So this is not only a terrible situation in itself, but it has clear implications um, for the nature of our legal system. Thank you very much for that um, introduction to this really important topic. Uh, Judge Cassell, in his first chapter, uh, Judge Rakoff gives you a shout out, and he notes you as one of the uh, judges or former judges who have uh, denounced America's uh, mass incarceration rate. At the same time, your career has been devoted to advocating for the rights of crime victims. And in addition to all that, we had a great podcast uh, about, you know, at the beginning of the corona crisis, about the corona crisis and the criminal justice system. And I wonder, now that we're hopefully, you know, seeing light at the end of the tunnel, what your response is to Judge Rakoff's note about the data. Why is it that young African-American men have not uh, gone down the incarceration rates where other groups have? And more broadly, what do you think the data tells us about whether or not this, uh, these mass incarceration rates do lead to a de decrease uh, in crime? Appreciate you ask, asking uh, those uh, questions, which will keep us busy uh, all night. Also, uh, a pleasure to be uh, on a panel with my former colleague, Professor Hessick, and also with uh, Judge Rakoff, who's written uh, just a monumental book that I'm sure everyone will want to take a look at. Uh, may not agree with everything in it, uh, but certainly will learn a lot uh, from reading it. Uh, I have been a critic of some very excessive sentences. I had to impose a 55-year sentence on a low-level drug dealer, which I thought, frankly, was a waste of taxpayer resources and and um, an insult to victims and other very uh, violent crimes that might see their offender go to prison for a much shorter period of time. And I think uh, Judge Rakoff's statistics are uh, correct. Uh, obviously, he talks about the, the very high incarceration rates I do think, however, we do have to put a bit of context onto some of those numbers. One of the reasons we have such high incarceration rates in the United States is we have high victimization rates. Uh, so Judge Rakoff mentioned we have 2 million uh, uh, people a year going to prison. Uh, we have, I think, almost by an order of magnitude more, maybe 20 million, depending on what uh, level of victimization you use, uh, victims of crime every year. So when you have high levels of victimization, it's not surprising to find high, high levels of incarceration. And I do think if we look at the trajectory of crime rates in America over the last 40 or 50 years, uh, we see that... Uh, as incarceration rates fell in the 1960s, crime rates went up. 
the response, as Judge Rakoff points out in his book in the 70s and, and particularly in the 80s, was to increase incarceration. And that does seem to have played a role in uh, reducing crime, although the extent uh, to which it played that role is, is the subject of debate. I guess one area where I think we need to be perhaps focusing even more resources is on policing. Uh, Judge Rakoff was talking about why is it that we're not seeing a reduction in incarceration rates for young men who are African-American. Uh, I think one of the, the possible explanations for that is that we're seeing, a, a particularly in the last six months or so, a startling increase in crime rates in inner city areas such as the south and west sides of Chicago. Uh, beginning in the last week of May, homicide rates in Chicago uh, increased by 50%, 50%, 50%, and um, the vast majority of those victims, 85% or more, are African American, uh, uh, African American descent, and uh, many of them are also young uh, males. And so, when you have high victimization rates, you are going to inevitably have high incarceration rates. And I think then the question is, uh, what can we do to fight the scourge of crime? Because if we fight the scourge of crime, then we won't have to, uh, of course, incarcerate as many people. Uh, Professor Hessek, your uh, response to what you've heard Judge Rakoff and Judge Cassell uh, suggest about the causes of mass incarceration and, and maybe focus on causes that um, you'd like to highlight, including perhaps the, the, the topic of your new, new book, plea bargaining. How, how if at all, does, does, does the plea bargaining system uh, fit into the over-incarceration rates? Sure. Thank you so much, Jeff. And, and, and thank you for including me. It was an absolute joy to, to read Judge Rakoff's book. It's incredibly well-written and compelling. And I'm delighted to be on a panel with two men who I, I greatly admire, um, including my former colleague, who I always enjoy listening to, um, even though we rarely agree. Um, I do, however, have to agree with him that we can't ignore that incarceration is a response to crime. It's a response to crimes, some of which involve victims and some of which don't. Um, and one of the questions we need to be asking ourselves is why is incarceration the first and sometimes the only tool that we use to address crime? A number of people have written very persuasively about other approaches that would help to address the sort of victimization that Professor Cassell was mentioning, including increased social services spending, um, other sorts of uh, revitalizations in some of the neighborhoods where we see high crime rates. But instead, what we see um, is a rush to put people in prison. I'm in the middle of a big empirical project on state legislatures, and I can't tell you how often I read through testimony where somebody has committed a crime, there's already a, book, a law on the books dealing with that behavior, but the response of the legislature is to pass a new crime or to lengthen sentences. On some level, what we need to do is we need to recognize that just putting people in prison isn't going to solve the problem of victimization. It's one response, but it's probably not the most effective. So why do we have so many people in prison? We've gotten really good at that. It, on some level, I should say, we've gotten very good at that. Um, the system has been changed so that everyone expects when charges are filed that there will be a conviction. 
not that there will be a trial or a jury, but that there will be a conviction. Um, we used to have much higher trial rates in this country. And along with those higher trial rates were a significant number of acquittals. And I think that frankly made people uncomfortable. And it was easy to argue that we needed broader laws or heavier sentences to avoid those sorts of acquittals and to get people to plead guilty. I don't think it's any accident that as the criminal trial rate um, bottomed out, so did the civil trial rate. I think Judge Rakoff captures this very well in his book that the justice system just isn't in the business of dispensing justice anymore. It's in the business of processing cases and those are very different things. And I, I think if you like efficiency, you might be able to defend what we have now, even though it's horribly inefficient in some ways. But if you care about reaching, uh, trying to figure out what actually happened and trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with the individuals involved, then the system we've set up in the United States right now isn't the system that you're, that you're gonna want. While powerfully said our criminal justice system is not about dispensing justice, but resolving cases. Uh, Judge Rakoff, you have a chapter, your second chapter is why innocent people plead guilty. And you include the really stark statistics about plea bargaining, which I'll just share because when I learned them long ago in law school, uh, they surprised me and I know they'll uh, be striking for our uh, friends who are watching. In 1980, you write 19% of all federal defendants went to trial. By 2000, the number had decreased to less than 6%. By 2010, to less than 3%, where it's remained ever since. In the States, the figure for criminal cases going to trial is now down to almost 2%. What should our friends make of the fact that nearly all criminal cases do not go to trial, but instead uh, settle through plea bargains and other means? And what, how does that affect why innocent people plead guilty? So the common theme to this change is as these, uh, uh, in my view, harsh laws were passed uh, uh, in reaction to rising crime in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, you see a direct correlation with the decrease in jury trials. Um, and the reason is clear. Um, the if you go to trial, the prosecutor has uh, alleged in his indictment voted by the grand jury uh, every crime that he thinks he can reasonably prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And so now with mandatory minimums and guidelines and uh, career offenders, you're facing 20, 30, 40 years, even if you're relatively low level in, say, a big drug conspiracy. So what is a prudent defense counsel? And I was a defense counsel for 15 years. Um, what do you do at that point? You go and you plea bargain with the prosecutor and you say, look, my uh, guy is really not that bad. He was at the low end. How about letting him plead to a lesser included offense or a superseding charge that will only have maybe five years mandatory imprisonment as opposed to 20 years. Um, and uh, uh, the notion um, that your client will turn that down just because in some cases uh, he's innocent uh, overlooks the risks that he is taking 
and the risks he's prepared not to take. Um, here are some statistics um, that are even worse, I'm sorry to say, than those in my book. These, again, are from, the, this was, uh, I looked this up today. Uh, I'm actually, uh, uh, I have a criminal trial going on. So there is at least one jury trial left in the United States. Uh, but I took a few minutes to uh, look this up. Uh, the Innocence Project, which has used DNA to exonerate uh, uh, now over 375 people who uh, were accused and found guilty of really serious crimes, murder, rape, uh, very serious crimes. Uh, of that 375, 44, or about 12%, pled guilty to crimes that we now know they were factually innocent of. But here's even worse. There's something called the National Registry of Exonerations, and that covers all types of exonerations for the last 30 years or so. And uh, that has now recorded 2,754 exonerations. Of that, 569, or about 21%, were people who pled guilty. I mean, this is staggering. These are people who are innocent, who are doing time in prison, which is no fun, um, because they didn't want to risk having to face a much higher penalty if they were convicted at trial. These are also people who often are very cynical about the legal system, don't believe uh, the system will exonerate them. Um, but it's really more than anything, the risk that they want to avoid, the risk of very long time that drives this unfortunate situation. Um, so um, uh, that is, that's the gist of it. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, Judge Cassell, uh, Judge Rakoff just said, people plead guilty because they're afraid, even though they're actually innocent, they may be wrongly convicted. And yet you've recently published important articles um, arguing that the rate is actually lower than estimates when it comes to wrongful convictions. Uh, your article, Overstating America's Wrongful Conviction Rate, Reassessing the Conventional Wisdom about the Prevalence of Wrongful Conviction, talks about uh, the growing body of academic literature about the problem of wrongful convictions. And you also uh, have contributed to a symposium about how often innocent people are actually convicted. Tell us about uh, the data and your conclusions on that. Let me, let me be clear, uh, in each case of a wrongful conviction, it of course is something that the system should work very, very hard to try to avoid, but there are trade-offs involved here, and I think that we need to put them into some uh, sort of context. As Judge Rakoff mentioned, there are about 2 million people a year that uh, go into custody, and if you go back, uh, as I think some of his statistics uh, that he's just citing go back uh, uh, for, let's say, 20 years, you're now looking at a pool of, let's say, 40 million cases. Now, can we find some cases in that pool of 40 million where innocent people have been convicted? Uh, sure, certainly we can, as he points out and others have pointed out. But what are, what are the lifetime risks here? I, it's obviously difficult to measure that precisely. There isn't a, a sheet somewhere that totes up exactly how many innocent people were convicted, but we can make reasonable estimates. And the articles uh, that you just cited uh, by me uh, attempt to do that. I come up with a figure of about uh, one out of 150,000 persons face a lifetime risk 
of being uh, convicted wrongfully and sent to prison for a violent crime. And if you do the math, it turns out that you're about twice as likely to be struck by lightning in a given year as you are to be wrongfully convicted and sent to prison for a violent crime. So uh, that's not to say we should get rid of uh, lightning rods or that we should get rid of protections in our uh, criminal justice system against convicting the innocent, but it is to say that we need to take account of, of the relative, uh, the relative uh, risks here. Um, what can we do to reduce the risk of wrongful conviction? I, I certainly am in favor of that. And I think one of the big problems with our criminal justice system is something that Judge Rakoff's book uh, does touch on, although I think uh, I would give it uh, perhaps even some more emphasis a lot of what goes on in America's criminal justice system today does not deal with the substance of cases, but uh, procedure associated with cases. Uh, we seem to spend a lot of resources litigating, did the police get a search warrant? Did they properly uh, give Miranda warnings and different things like that? And that seems to be an area where defense attorneys then prioritize their efforts. Uh, I think we need to change that and we should be prioritizing the question is this person guilty or innocent? Uh, for example, one of the things I was surprised to learn in some of my research is apparently it's an accepted strategy for defense attorneys not to ask their clients whether or not they were guilty of the crime. Because if they find out the person's guilty, then that may place certain restraints on the kinds of defenses they can then raise. So I would change the rules so defense attorneys are required to ask their clients, did you do it? And then try to investigate uh, uh, that particular question with uh, uh, more aggressiveness than seems to be the case uh, right now. I think we could modify doctrines like the Miranda Doctrine which places a lot of emphasis on what did the cops say and what kind of waiver forms did they use. We could change that, for example, to videotaping of interrogations and uh, maybe give the police more latitude to ask questions. And in that way, we can move away from uh, rules that focus on procedure and begin to focus on substance, including the substance of whether someone is guilty or innocent. Thank you very much for all that. Uh, Professor Hasek, uh, how do you, what do you make of, uh, on the one hand, Judge Rakoff saying that uh, innocent people actually will plead guilty because they don't trust the system to exonerate them, and Professor Cassell saying actually in, in the aggregate, very few innocent people are convicted. Um, and I, there, I have two specific questions. Just uh, well, one of our friends asks, um, does a judge have to accept a plea bargain? And I wonder if you could also tell the remarkable story you shared at a, a conference in 2018 about a public defender in the Bronx who told you he'd never been able to convince a client to reject the plea deal, no matter how that bad that plea deal was, if it included immediate release and the innocent client who actually pled guilty. Sure, I'd be happy to. And let me let me say something. Um, let me say something in the outset, which is I totally appreciate why Judge Rakoff is talking about innocent people pleading guilty. I opened my book on plea bargaining with a story. But a gentleman here in North Carolina, Damian Mills, who pleaded guilty to a crime he didn't commit, it's a powerful story. But the answer, in my mind at least, to why innocent people plead guilty is because everyone pleads guilty. We aren't able to appropriately sort the innocent and the guilty at the beginning of a case. And the pressure is to get people to plead guilty. And that pressure is placed upon the guilty and the innocent alike. One, one instance of this that stands out to me involves a very guilty defendant um, 
who uh, he and his father were arrested for growing large quantities of marijuana in their farm. I believe it was in upstate New York. And um, he told his lawyer he wanted to go to trial. And the lawyer was like, no, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go to trial. And he's like, no, no, I wanna go to trial. And so the lawyer told the prosecutor that they should get a competency hearing for um, the client. The judge agreed, he had a competency hearing. They thought he was insane. The mental health professional was like, no, he's sane. He just wants to go to trial. So then again, they were negotiating and the lawyer was like, I really just can't believe that this guy wants to go to trial. He's facing enormous, enormous penalties if he goes to trial. So they asked for a second and then a third competency hearing. The judge, the prosecutor and the defense attorney all agreed this man must literally be crazy in order to insist on trial. He eventually went to trial and was convicted and sentenced of some, uh, to some ridiculous amount of time in prison. And the Second Circuit reversed because the delay in um, holding him over for all these competence hearings violated his speedy trial rate. The case is United States versus Togano out of the Second Circuit. It's a 2018 case. But I think that that case illustrates that this isn't a problem with getting innocent people to plead guilty. It's that the system's designed to make everyone plead guilty and not just people facing really large sentences. People who are facing minimal penalties if they're convicted, the system has a way of pressuring them into pleading guilty by insisting that they come back to court again and again and again before they can finally get a hearing where they have to take time off from work. They might miss a court date. They have to get subway fare or get, borrow a car and get childcare for their kids. It's, you know, there's a, a famous book about this called The Process is the Punishment, where whether you're guilty or innocent, it's not worth it. The, the gentleman that I spoke to, the, the public defender from the Bronx, told me that he, when he was in misdemeanor court, the, the offer on the table for all of his clients would be, if you plead, we'll release you immediately. This is for his clients that were in custody. And he couldn't convince any of them not to take that deal because staying in jail even another day or two just didn't seem worth it to them. So in some ways, what we've built for ourselves isn't a system that just convicts everybody. It's a system that's designed to convict. And I just don't see, I, I don't see how we can fix it just for innocent people. I don't think that that's possible. And I'll add one last thing just to be a total joy kill here. I agree with my former colleague, Professor Cassell, that we should care an awful lot more about guilt and innocence. The problem is the system that we've built is designed to allow that to be bargained away. In the state of Arizona, um, which has a strong libertarian streak, they passed some really robust criminal discovery bills where criminal defendants could get basically open file discovery as soon as they were indicted. So as soon as they had a preliminary hearing or um, the prosecutor went to a grand jury. So what did they do? They started arresting people and offering them deals that were only good up until they got indicted. That's, that's what happens in Arizona now. Maricopa County, that's the big county where Phoenix is, they actually have a specialized court just to process plea bargains of people who haven't yet been indicted. So they set up a system designed to circumvent discovery rules which I'm, I'm sure Professor Cassell would agree with me, if we want to sort the innocent from the guilty, we probably need to know what the evidence is. And yet everyone in the system goes along with it 
because we've stopped thinking about a criminal trial as a moment to sort the innocent from the guilty. It's we just think of it as a moment in time where we're processing people from people who happen to have been arrested to people who are now convicted. Wow, powerful examples and a strong suggestion about the costs of moving to a plea-driven system rather than a jury trial system and all that is given up. Um, just to all three of our panelists, I'm watching the Q&A box, which is just full of thoughtful, powerful questions. I'm going to keep uh, for at least one more uh, round or so uh, asking Judge Rakoff to put on the table the broad topics in his book, but all three panelists should feel free to pick out any questions they think are especially uh, interesting in the course of their responses. Judge Rakoff, you have uh, a chapter on why eyewitness testimony is so often wrong, as well as a chapter on the failure and future of forensic science. Um, and that's related to uh, yet another chapter about the future of the death penalty. Will the death penalty ever die? Um, why don't you share some of your main uh, thoughts on all of those points? Forensic science and eyewitness testimony uh, have proven to be often very inaccurate, but they're very different. Uh, let me start with uh, eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony is very powerful. Uh, typically, this is a bystander who just happened uh, to see a crime being committed, um, and they take the stand if the case goes to trial, or they tell the prosecutor if the case goes to a plea bargain. I am 100% sure that Mr. Jones pointing out a photograph or in court the actual defendant is the person I saw commit this crime. According to the Innocence Project, 70% of the cases where they were able to show from DNA that the person was actually innocent involved eyewitness testimony in which an eyewitness testimony eyewitness said that that defendant had committed the crime. And I'll give you just one example to illustrate the case of Kirk Bloodworth. Uh, he was convicted in uh, 1984 of rape and murder, and there was no physical evidence. There was no um, uh, circumstantial evidence, but there were no fewer than five eyewitnesses who said that they had seen him either commit the crime or at least in the vicinity of the victim uh, just before the crime was committed. Um, and so, not surprisingly, the jury found him guilty. So for years, he asked for DNA. And finally, uh, after being refused four times by the courts, the Innocence Project got involved and they were able to convince the court to let them test the DNA that had been taken from the victim from the semen that was found in her vagina uh, when she was uh, examined. And the what that showed was that Mr. Bloodworth was totally innocent. And it also showed that another person was totally guilty, a person that had been a suspect, but the uh, cops had not followed up because of all the eyewitnesses who put it on Mr. Bloodworth. And that fella, because there's no statute of limitations on murder, 
was then prosecuted and pled guilty and actually confessed, confessed in great detail to how he had committed this crime. Meantime, of course, poor Mr. Bloodworth spent nine years in prison until that occurred. Why is eyewitness testimony um, not as good as uh, one thinks it is? Uh, sometimes it's obvious things like bad lighting or things like that. My absolute favorite legal movie, as it I'm sure it is of others, is My Cousin Vinny. And in My Cousin Vinny, uh, there are, is a lot of exposure of what uh, bad eyewitness testimony can be by people who have bad eyesight or people who are looking through smudge windows, etc. Uh, but the National Academy of Science did a science scientific study of why um, this uh, evidence was bad, uh, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be co-chair of that uh, committee. And um, uh, what they uh, what we learned is there are many infirmities in the human perceptual equipment and the human uh, memory that cannot easily be cured and yet are not recognized by most people, including the very people who make the eyewitness identifications. And I'll give you just two examples. One is the racial factor. For reasons not yet known, but it's well established that it exists, people of one race are not as good at identifying the fine facial features of someone of a different race as they are of someone of their own race. And this cuts across all races. So uh, whites are not good at discerning the fine facial features of blacks. Blacks are not good at discerning the fine facial features of whites and so forth. Uh, a different kind of problem is what's called the merger effect, the tendency of the human memory to fill in gaps. So typically an eyewitness may see the perpetrator for maybe two or three minutes and maybe really often focused on the gun or other weapon that's being used, uh, but we'll see the face. Um, and then a few hours later, uh, he is shown a photo array by the police. It used to be mostly lineups, but these days, they, thanks to computers, they photographic arrays, typically seven photos of people who look somewhat alike. And then the person is asked to, uh, do you see anywhere in those seven photos um, the person uh, who committed the crime, who you saw commit the crime? Now, the eyewitness studies these very carefully. He knows he's got an important uh, job to do. And Finally, he will say, well, I think it's it's number two. And number two may have a scar above his uh, right eyebrow. That's not why he's picking him out. And he didn't really remember anything about the scar of the person he saw. By the time he goes to trial, or by the time even that he talks to the prosecutor three months later, those memories will have merged. And he will now say, I am sure it's this guy because I will never forget seeing that scar above his right eyebrow. And what he's really remembering, but he doesn't consciously realize it, is he saw that for the first time when he looked at the photo array, not when he saw uh, the actual person. And that leads to uh, inaccurate 
identifications. Uh, I do want to talk about forensic science, but let me stop there because I've gone on at some length. Thank you very much uh, for the fascinating examples. Uh, Judge Cassell, uh, do you share Judge Rakoff's view about the limitations of forensic science and of eyewitness testimony or not? I think you, you, have, uh, you, you have some different views. And then as you answer, just because we are, are getting so many questions about potential reforms, if you could begin to introduce the question of what changes uh, you think, uh, either from uh, legislatures, judges, prosecutors, police officers, defense attorneys, or other actors might address uh, the, the concerns that you uh, think are most urgent. Yes, so this is an area where I, I agree with uh, Judge Rakoff that we need to be very uh, uh, concerned about eyewitness testimony, and he's gone through a, a, a number of the reasons uh, here tonight why we should be concerned about eyewitness testimony. His book uh, discusses this at, at greater length. I would add the caveat, however, that again, when we're talking about the number of cases that are involve a wrongful conviction, we're talking about a very tiny percentage of cases in the criminal justice system. And I think there's good reason to believe that that tiny percentage is declining over time. It was interesting, Judge Rakoff mentioned the case of Kirk Bloodworth. Uh, that was a case from 36 years ago. And if the same facts were to materialize today, uh, Bloodsworth would not be convicted because we now have in place a robust DNA uh, infrastructure that would uh, test the information and the evidence that uh, was available in that case. And so he would never have been charged, much less uh, wrongfully uh, convicted. And I think that uh, makes the point that uh, a tiny percentage of wrongful convictions uh, is declining over time. One thing that is not uh, improving over time, however, is our crime clearance rate in this country. I've published uh, uh, some articles on this most recently, uh, a 2016 article in the Boston University Law Review that talks about America's crime clearance rates. Uh, in 1965, the year before the Supreme Court handed down the Miranda decision, uh, police in this country solved or cleared about 60% of all violent crimes. And then when Miranda came down, uh, restricting the ability of police officers to get confessions, it fell over the next couple of years to about 45%. And we've been uh, uh, at that level uh, ever since, essentially. Uh, and so that's an area where our law enforcement system is not as good as it was uh, even back in 1965. So you mentioned what kind of reforms should we have? I think we should take advantage of technology. Uh, and I'll talk again about the area of confessions. Uh, I think what we ought to do anytime someone's arrested in the United States is videotape the interrogation to make sure the police are behaving fairly, they're not coercing someone, not entrapping them with questions that are misleading or something along those lines. But at the same time, I think we should give police officers uh, more discretion to ask those questions and get, get rid of some of the technical Miranda rules uh, that do not uh, focus on guilt or innocence, but uh, focus on, on procedure. So that would be, I think, one of the kinds of reforms that we could do. And more broadly, I think we need to think about how to refocus our criminal justice system away from procedure and onto the substance of whether someone is guilty or innocent. Uh, Professor Hedrick, what's your response to Professor Cassell's uh, provocative suggestion that we should focus less on procedure and more on the substance of guilt or innocence? His specific proposal, uh, which is uh, well, well known and, and provocative that uh, rather than focusing on um, Miranda uh, technicalities, the police should have broader discretion to seek confessions, but they should all be videotaped. So that would be accountable. And then, you know, relate that to your 
thoughts about uh, Judge Rakoff's um, concerns about limitations of eyewitness testimony and forensic uh, evidence. And in addition to all that, come up with some reforms. A simple, simple question. <laughs> We're approaching the end of our wonderful panel. So let's uh, get as much of your wisdom as we can. Happy to. So let me say a few things. First of all, um, I, I think I disagree with Professor Cassell in terms of how much the system focuses on procedure right now. Um, so many cases plead early in the process. They plead before motions could be filed and the sorts of procedural issues that Professor Cassell is talking about can be litigated. In fact, an agreement not to file those sorts of motions is priced in to many plea bargains. And a defendant who has the temerity to say, I'd like to challenge the confession is going to be told in no uncertain terms um, that the plea bargain that they will be offered will be worse than the plea bargain they can get beforehand. So do we read a lot of cases that litigate these issues? We do read a lot of cases. How often do they get litigated when they actually exist? Far less frequently, I think, than Professor Cassell thinks. And if you believe, and I'm not sure that I do, if you believe that we exclude evidence in order to change the behavior of police officers, I'd say that the police officers know how unlikely it is that their particular activities will be challenged in a given case. They know that the defendant will likely be offered a plea bargain. Um, so there's that. I appreciate Professor Cassell's point that we don't have good information about how many innocent people plead guilty. And it's possible that people are overstating the number of people who plead guilty. I, I think we all need to recognize that we're operating with a lack of information. But I will say one thing where I think we probably all do agree, which is that that risk is not borne evenly across the population. Jeff, you, me, Professor Gassell, Judge Rakoff, I don't think any of us are going to be falsely accused of a crime. I think the chances of that are incredibly low. And even if we were accused, I think we'd probably know the right sort of people to get the review, the second look that we would need in a prosecutor's office. So even if the chances are low, I think it's important to recognize that the chances are higher for some people than for others. What about the bigger question about problems with eyewitness evidence and forensics evidence? I don't have good answers to those questions, except to point out something really depressing, which is I keep telling you it's a problem that everyone's pressured into pleading guilty, but the alternative to that is a trial. And I, I think Judge Rakoff's examples show us, and we know ourselves, trials aren't perfect. Juries are doing the best that they can to figure out what happened, but they don't know for sure. And we're always going to find out that at least sometimes they got it wrong. Now, I think we used to have a sense, I don't know how long ago that sense existed, but I think we used to have a sense that the juries were supposed to err on the side of acquittal, right? The famous maxim from Blackstone about 10 guilty men going free. I don't think we feel that way anymore. I think that um, we acutely feel the injustice of a guilty person being acquitted as well. And that's the danger that we have when we say we're just going to allow everything to be resolved at trial. What's the answer? I don't know that I have very good, a very good answer to that, Jeff. I, um, I think part of it is judges being less willing to accept plea bargains that are offered to them by the prosecution and the defense attorney without asking questions about it. Um, I think in low level cases, 
Uh, we have a justice court model. We have an, there's one in Salt Lake City and several other places across the country where a defendant can insist on a trial. And if they get convicted, they get an automatic trial de novo in a, in a court of record, a sort of a real court. The justice court isn't sort of competent to necessarily convict people that way. I studied the justice court in Salt Lake City for my book. And I found that when push came to shove, defendants were much more likely to go to trial there to insist on going to trial. And the response was actually prosecutors dismissing a large percentage of cases. So maybe part of the question is, if we've empowered one side um, to, uh, to sort of pressure the other, if we've empowered prosecutors to pressure defendants by making the stakes too high um, to go to trial, what would the landscape look like if we tried to even that out? I mean, I think we've seen that a lot when it comes to the civil system with tort reform, there was a sense that one side had too much leverage. I would hope that we would start thinking about the criminal justice system the same way and trying to balance out the leverage because that's certainly not where we are now. Thank you very much for that. Well, we now come to the part of our discussion where we're gonna hone in on reforms. And Judge Rakoff, your book, for all of its wonderful virtues, and I'm sure our friends have been watching, I hope you've been persuaded to, to read it. Um, it it's, it's not exactly cheerful in its final two conclusions. You have a chapter called Don't Trust the Courts, and you also tell us don't really trust the legislatures to be sources of meaningful reform. So uh, tell our friends why you reached those, those rather uh, dispiriting conclusions, um, but, but why you believe that judges and courts should take a more uh, vigorous role in the kind of reforms that you think are necessary, and then give us a sense of what some of those concrete uh, reforms are. So, um the reason um, I was first motivated to start writing articles about this um, was what I was seeing in my own court and I was seeing in the courts of my colleagues um, uh, and uh, my feeling that uh, uh, judges needed to be more vocal about this because uh, the politics in the United States for a long time um, were very punitive. Uh, you uh, didn't get elected unless you were tough on crime, unless you wanted to lock them up. Um, I, I do want to uh, uh, digress for one half second to say one thing about uh, where I disagree with uh, Professor Cassell. He has written a brilliant article on that argues that the number of uh, people who are um, uh, innocent, who are actually convicted is much smaller than many people believe. Um, th this is, however, I think you would agree, very hard to measure. And all sorts of assumptions have to be made. And so they're, they're, it's, I think from my standpoint, we really don't know the answer. What I do think we know a little bit better is the percentage of people who plead guilty who are actually innocent. I gave those statistics at the beginning from the 11% from the Innocence Project and the 21% um, from the National Registry of Exoneration. There we know these people were held to be ultimately proven to be innocent, but they pled guilty nonetheless. And my sure those cases 
were maybe the subject of particular interest. That's why there was exoneration, because lawyers thought maybe there's something about these cases that are uh, doubtful. But even if we're talking about, you know, 5%, um, when you consider 5% of 2 million people, what is that, 100,000 people who are in prison right now? who pled guilty to crimes that they did not commit. I don't think that's a trivial uh, number, and I think we have to, to, to recognize that. Now, having said all that, um, the, uh, what can be done? Well, some of these problems are more easily solved than others. Um, I do think the starting point would be to do away with mandatory minimums and career offender statutes, uh, and as well as what have turned out to be very harsh guidelines, um, the, the, the federal judges are on record for many years now as opposing, as a group, mandatory minimums, where you're not um, uh, sentencing the human being before you or even sentencing the crime before you, you're do, dealing with some legislat legislative abstraction that was introduced because it was good politics. So that would be a starting place. Um, I think that since so much of the present system, for better or worse, is in the hands of prosecutors, I think we should do a lot more about educating prosecutors. For example, eyewitness testimony that I mentioned before. Uh, in my experience, prosecutors are completely unaware of the more subtle problems with eyewitness testimony that results from problems with memory, that problems with perception, things that are deep in the human psyche can't easily be cured. We don't have a magic wand that says uh, we're going to make everyone's memory much better. Uh, but we can at least alert the prosecutors and train the prosecutors uh, to be much more conscious of this when they make the what is the critical decision, the plea bargain decision. Um, uh, I also, somewhat more controversially, would involve the judiciary in the plea bargain process earlier. Uh, this is now forbidden in the federal system. Uh, there's a rule that says judges can't get involved. Uh, and in a way, I think that's kind of strange. Here it is, 90% of the system, and yet judges are not allowed to be involved in it. Uh, and I think if judges could get involved much earlier, uh, as they do in a few states, Connecticut and Florida, for example, um, you would get fairer results and more results that, as uh, uh, was pointed out, are closer to the merits, the real merits of uh, the case. Uh, uh, so uh, I, in my book, I suggest a bunch of other ideas, uh, some of which I am quite confident will never be enacted, but uh, the, uh, I'll stop with those, those beginning ones. Thank you for all that, for emphasizing the importance of reform of sentencing practices and mandatory minimums. You note in the book that the First Step Act, uh, a landmark bipartisan act, uh, has passed Congress, which does include some sentencing reform. And recently in the COVID uh, quarantine period, legislatures in some states, including in North Carolina, have adopted First Step Act at the state level that reduced mandatory minimums. 
Um, Professor uh, Cassell and Pesek, the one rule of Constitution Center panels is we really do try to end on time, which gives us <clears throat> just three minutes before we have to sign off. I, I think we can give Judge Rakoff the, the fuller <clears throat> last word because we're commenting on his great book. But if each of you could just share with our friends in really a few, just a few sentences, which reforms of the criminal justice system you think uh, most uh, important to adopt? Uh, that would be great, uh, Judge Cassell. Yeah, uh, for me, I think it's very clear. I think we need more voices in our criminal justice system, specifically the voices of crime victims. I think that could uh, play a role in uh, plea bargaining and many other things. I note, for example, in Pennsylvania that Marcy's Law, a uh, proposed constitutional amendment to the Pennsylvania Constitution is currently uh, in litigation before Pennsylvania courts, but hopefully uh, the voice of Pennsylvania's voters will be uh, heard and the voice of uh, voters all over the country that have been adding crime victims' rights measures uh, will be heard because I think that's one way to improve our criminal justice system is by more inclusion of voices in the process. Thank you very much for that indeed. Professor Hesek, last word to you. Yeah, and I'll say, I think we've spent most of tonight, for good reason, talking about very serious crimes with serious punishments. But the vast majority of criminal cases in this country are misdemeanor cases filed in state court. And so if I had to propose one reform that would change things, it would be aimed at those cases. It would be that we can't keep people um, in jail pretrial if they've been arrested for a misdemeanor. They should be presumptively released. And um, that they shouldn't have to keep showing up at court time and time again for all of these appearances. We don't require that of civil litigants. And that process of the punishment pressures them into pleading guilty. They just don't think it's worth it to keep showing up and never have a trial. So those two changes, I think, would dramatically shift the balance of power when it comes to plea bargaining. Thank you so much, uh, Judge <coughs> Jed Rakoff, uh, Judge Paul Cassell, and Professor Kara Byrne. Hesek, uh, both for ending exactly on time, beautifully brought in, and also for a really provocative discussion. Friends, thank you for taking an hour <clears throat> in the middle of your evenings during this busy, challenging time to educate yourself about the Constitution. Please continue that education, first of all, by reading. We must grow in wisdom by, by, by books, and I want you to consider reading Judge Rakoff's uh, new book, uh, Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free, Judge Cassell's book, Victims uh, in Criminal Procedure, and uh, Professor Hessek's forthcoming book, Punishment Without Trial, Why Plea Bargaining is a Bad Deal. Continue to join these Constitution Center programs. And if you're not a listener, please check out our We the People podcast, which every week uh, debate constitutional issues, just as we're debating them tonight. Thank you, friends. Thank you to our panelists. Hope everyone has a good night. This episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with John Guerra and Lana Ulrich. It was engineered by Greg Sheckler. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott. <laughs>